Thank you. I appreciate your help. <clears throat> My title this morning is a house of prayer, is a life of prayer. I want to talk to you not just about prayer. I want to talk to you about the fact that we are living in the last days. I am absolutely convinced, as I said earlier, this is a topic that I will touch and embark on much more as we move forward. Already the Holy Spirit has been putting on my heart to do a whole series with some visualization about end time events. Uh, as uh, the fear of the pandemic lessens, uh, we will do that and launch that as an evangelistic outreach. I believe that God has been speaking to me about the days that we're in and giving me prophetical insight. I am excited because our homecoming is not far away. But we have a work to do. And there is a purpose and a role for the church. If it was all about our homecoming, we could all get personally raptured the moment we get saved. There is a purpose for the church. I want to, as I start my message this morning, before I start reading verse for verse, verse of the context, <clears throat> I want to bring a thought to your understanding, and I want to season this message with an understanding. Whether you've ever noticed it or not, in the last few months of Jesus' life on earth, a lot of his conversation turned towards parables that spoke about the coming king who would come to investigate his vineyards. He gives parables about uh, servants who were given talents, and those who were faithful with those talents were given the opportunity to rule and to govern cities on his behalf. And those who were not faithful with those talents, even what they had was taken from them. But very specifically, throughout the last uh, six months and less of Jesus' ministry and life, he turns his attention very much to end-time events, and he starts to prepare his disciples before he parts. Uh, he starts to prepare them of the things that are coming. It's become clear to me as I've studied more and more the Gospels, this repetitious theme, this repeating theme towards the end of all the Gospel writers, Jesus spent more and more time talking about the end. Many times they were veiled conversations. They were somewhat hidden, but the, the, they've become unhidden in my understanding as of late. And what I'm going to preach and what I'm going to share this morning is something that took place two weeks before his crucifixion. Two weeks. Jesus had uh, told his disciples that they would, if they went up the road, they would find a, a donkey together with its colt, and they were to 
uh, take the donkey and the colt, and when the owner says, what are you doing? Let them know the master has use of it. When they brought the, the donkey and its colt to Jesus, Jesus rode on the donkey and stood on a hilltop overlooking Jerusalem. And he broke down and he started to weep. What he wept about was this. The prophet Isaiah had prophesied to the nation of Israel that their God would come. He would come to redeem them and to bring salvation. But he also said your God will come with vengeance and he will bring a day of wrath. Two separate comings. Jesus heralded the beginning of the first coming when he came out of the wilderness after his temptation. He was handed the prophet, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And the Bible says he scrolled through. He specifically looked for the passage in Isaiah uh, 61 where he made a proclamation, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. How he ended that proclamation is really important. Because he actually stopped halfway through the verse. And he said, and he has anointed me to proclaim the acceptable year of God's favor. The next part of the sentence says, and the day of his wrath. But Jesus stopped before he read the day of his wrath. His first coming was to open up and to proclaim the year of God's favor. And we are living in the year of God's favor. And another passage, the prophet Isaiah prophesied and said, In the year of God's favor, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk. I believe we're living in a dispensation that was meant to be glorious and miraculous in the church. But not too unlike Israel, we have waves of being hot and waves of being cold. But I believe that the glory of God was always meant to be continuous and progressive. And it was meant to go from glory to greater glory. Here Jesus is. And he starts to prepare his disciples with hints of the day of God's wrath. And two weeks before, he's sitting on this donkey looks over Jerusalem and he wept. He said, if only you had to recognize the coming of your God. He made proclamation that God had come to save. That's why in John, we as Gentile people, non-Hebrew people, we read, for the, the Lord has come, uh, I, have not, I have not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And we take solace in that. We get excited. Jesus hasn't come to condemn the world. He's come to save the world. But there's a lot more prophetic substance behind that passage that we have reiterated for years. Oh, he didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. He said it because his first coming is to save the world. His second coming is to bring the judgment and the wrath and the vengeance of God. The people of the tribe of Ishakar understood the times and the seasons. And I want you to be people who understand the times and the season. In the midst of all of David's mighty men who were great 
spear throwers, who were ambidextrous with the sword, who was great archers. It lists a whole tribe of people who understood the season and the times of God. And you would think in the midst of all of these military exploits that these different tribes were capable of, why would timing be important? Because timing is everything. Timing is everything. You can have a, a brilliant uh, uh, strategy, a play in football, but if the timing isn't right, that strategy, that play will not work. Timing is everything, church. And it's very important that we're like the, the people of Ishaka, that we understand the seasons and the timing of God. And so Jesus rides down the mountain and yeah, people are saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And the priests are telling Jesus that he should silence his believers. And Jesus said, if they're silent, the stones will cry out and praise me. He rides down into Jerusalem. Now, mind you, in the midst of the people saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, he's weeping because they don't recognize his coming. I want you to understand that a remnant received him, but Israel as a nation, by and large, had rejected their own Messiah. They had been waiting for him, waiting for him, looking for him, reading the prophets. But when he came, their eyes were closed. These things are written so that we can be wise and not make the same mistakes. Do you know why history repeats itself? History repeats itself because man will always be man, sin will always be sin, and the devil will always be the devil. And so the pattern continues. Man in his foolishness, man in his carelessness, man in his arrogance, man in his selfishness. Man and sin and Satan haven't changed biologically, uh, by and large. And so history repeats itself. The things that are written are written so that we would be wise, see what the Word of God says, and not fall into the same patterns. Church, I'm talking to you. This is a preparation for the bride of Jesus Christ so that when He comes, we will not be found wanting. Even on that regard, Jesus gives a parable and says there were ten virgins, five had extra oil, and they were waiting for the bridegroom, and they cleaned their lamps regularly, trimmed their wicks. I need to clean my lamp regularly. I need to trim my wicks so that my flame isn't smoky, but rather it gives a clear, bright flame. Do you hear what I'm saying? But we also need to have that extra oil. There were five that are wise and five that were foolish, and I want us to be wise. Jesus is looking, and the people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, to the king. And yet he's weeping, because he knew only a remnant would receive him, and the nation, by and large, would enter into uh, deception. They would reject him. In two weeks' time, they would nail him on a cross, and as a judgment within 35 years, Israel as a nation would cease to exist. 
2,000 years, they were dispossessed. 2,000 years the church has been ruling. If you look at the history of man, starting from the book of Genesis, approximately the first 2,000 years is human history in general and their relationship with God and judged by a great flood. Every culture, every tribe, no matter how ancient, has a story of a flood. That God starts history with a man called Abraham. And the people that came out of Abraham and the nation of Israel, 2,000 years. Now that they've been dispossessed for 2,000 years, grace came to the Gentile world. We've had 2,000 years of history. We are closing in on 6,000 years, the completion of human history on the earth. And the seventh year is like the seventh day God rests and there will be a 1,000 year reign, the millennium. And God will lock up the devil and give the earth rest for 1,000 years. Jesus is about to return in the very, very near future. And it is my prayer that every one of you and 10,000 more are ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. Amen. And when I say 10,000 more, I don't mean total around the earth. I mean just your friends and contacts. 10,000 as an explosion of who you are. So two weeks before Jesus goes to the cross, they're hailing him as king of kings. He rides into Jerusalem and he starts turning the tables upside down. Sometimes we need to turn the tables upside down. He says, you know, for the excuse of bringing sacrifices to my father's house, you've set up your vendors and you're shortchanging people. You're using corrupt weight systems. And you're not just making your little bit of profit. You are actually gouging the people as you uh, charge them for turtle doves or charge them for a spotless lamb or a heifer or whatever it might be. And he turns the tables upside down. He calls sin for what it is. How uncomfortable we've become with that in the church of Jesus Christ. But Jesus called sin for what it is. And he still loved the sinner. The Pharisees came out and they said, by what authority are you doing this? Even after he cleansed the temple and the sick rushed him and he started healing them. They had a mass mini crusade of healing and the power of God. And the Pharisees were more concerned to know whose authority he was doing this by. And they rebuked him. Jesus, on his way back to Bethany, passes the fig tree he cursed the day before. I'm not going to go into that because that's another whole story of fascinating information. But this is what he says when he turns the tables upside down. It's listed in Matthew, it's listed in Luke, it's listed in Mark, and it's a quote from Isaiah 56. In Matthew 21, verse 13, when Jesus is bringing order and righteousness back to the house of God, 
He says, it is written, he said to them, my house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Luke writes the same, 1946, it is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The gospel writer Mark writes the same. He recounts the story in his words. And when he gets to this classic point, he says, Mark 11, verse 17, and he taught them. He said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Well, since they are actually quoting the Word of God, since Jesus was paraphrasing the prophet Isaiah, let's take a moment to go deeper in the Word, and let's read what Isaiah says. In Isaiah 56, verse 7, the prophet says, These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, for every nation. Everyone will be welcome to worship and to pray and to uh, make intercession before the Lord. I find it interesting that Jesus really starts to emphasize the importance of prayer at the same time that he's closing out his ministry and he keeps talking to them about end times. Please hear me. Come on, look at me for a moment. I want this to sink deep. We are entering a phase, I promise you. I tell you that while things may go quiet for a little bit under the surface of what is happening around the world, there are drastic shifts and changes that are taking place and the enemy is setting things up for end times. And we, the people of God, far more important than we, the people of the United States of America, as we, the people of God, we carry great authority. As we, the people of America, we carry one vote per person. But as we, the church of Jesus Christ, we have power with heaven and we can command the will and the word of the Father on earth. Can I get an agreement? But we, the church, but we, the sons of God, but we, the people of God. Jesus spoke more and more about prayer and end time matters as his life was coming to a close. He was preparing his Hebrew disciples for a tremendous judgment and finale that was coming on their nation. And I feel within me the Spirit of God preparing the nations of the world for a finale and a close. Since the last week of last year, God put it on my heart to preach a series on draw me and I will run after you. 
Right after that, we as a church went into 21 days of prayer and fasting. And then there was sermon after sermon on prayer and sermon after sermon on repentance. And to my joy and my delight, I kept hearing reports from many of you how many famed and notable preachers around the world were preaching the same messages. We entered into a time where we faced a pandemic, and in our lifetimes, most of us have never experienced anything like this. Then rioting and looting and, and, and anarchy in the streets of the United States of America. Whoever would have guessed it or fathomed it. Economic uh, turmoil and uh, up, absolute upheaval. Who would have thought that 2020 would have brought that? I had a great vision for 2020, but nobody listened to me. <laughs> I had great ideas for 2020, but it seems as if the world had another plan. But God was speaking from this pulpit and from pulpits around the world that it was a time of preparation. And I feel urgently, and I purposely said urgently, the need to bring to your awareness that in the closing days of Jesus' ministry, he prepared his disciples for what was about to come. I don't know when Jesus is going to come, and I'm not going to try to predict it, but I do know the times and the season. We won't know the day or the hour, but we sure can change that sm a smell that there is a change in the air. In springtime, you smell it. The citrus trees start to put out perfume. If we could bottle it, it would be phenomenal. I mean the real stuff, not the chemical, artificial stuff. We should be able to smell it. I smell it. I hope you smell it. Jesus immediately talks about the importance of prayer and the fact that the house of God should be a house of prayer. And you might say to me, well, Pastor, I thought we were the church. Exactly. You just helped me go to the next point. David, uh, when David, uh, when Isaiah prophesied that God's house would be a place of sacrifices and a place where offerings would be brought to the altar, uh, <clears throat> I'll read it again. These I bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. What sacrifices are we supposed to bring? David realized that it's not burnt offerings and sacrifices of animals that God desires. David was very much like us, and I got to tell you, I really appreciate the fact that the Word of God is very honest. And while it presents David as a hero, it also presents David who was as common as you and me, who was capable of sin and who did sin. Oftentimes, heroes want to be on pedestals but when you're on a pedestal, no one can relate to you. When heroes are walking dusty streets like everybody else, everybody can relate to them because they realize they're just like me. 
And the Bible does that. It doesn't make make believe heroes, fantasy people. It shows them with their warts and with their blemishes. It shows them as uniquely human, just like you and I are uniquely human, and yet capable of supernatural things. What I'm saying to you, church, is as we're coming to the close of this time in history of human history, you and I, faults and all, warts and all, with our limitations, we can rise up, we can step up, and we can be the supernatural men and women of God. We can be like the heroes of old. God didn't pick perfect men. He took men and women who chose to believe and to trust Him. That was the one predicating factor that they believed him and trusted him. Can I get an agreement? Amen. Amen. That's why I'm behind this pulpit. I'm not perfect. I've got plenty of failures. But as we humble ourselves and trust him, he can do great things with broken things. Amen. All right, so Isaiah says, bring the offerings, bring the sacrifices. My house is meant to be a house of prayer. How does that equate to us in the New Testament? How does that equate to us as New Covenant Christians? How does that equate to us as Gentile believers, non-Hebrew, ritualistic, practicing people? How does it equate to us? David, when he had sinned and was guilty of murder and guilty of adultery, in Psalm 51, he writes a psalm, a song of repentance. And without reading the whole psalm, uh, just from verse 14 to 17, this is what David pens by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed. Can you imagine the shame and the weight on this public figure gets found out he didn't just have a Monica Lewinsky. He committed murder. He cries out to God, deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, my sake. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praises. You don't delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. God, that you will not despise. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul makes it very clear to us. Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Now he goes on and he says something that I don't hear preached a lot. But it's in there. Every day sermons are crafted and they, they're executed and they're preached. 
But this verse that's in there is very often read. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Here it comes. You are not your own. The life he redeemed, it's not yours. It's his. The breath he gave you, it's not yours. It's his. And the same way Jesus went about cleaning the temple, Herod's temple, which God was okay about destroying because it had become a den of iniquity. God allowed it. Now you're the temple of the Holy Ghost. And God says, your life is not your own. Your life is meant to be a showcase of who I am. Hang on a second. Man, that was a good point, Pastor Rob. Good preaching. You're not your own. We, you know, we preach... I believe it's biblical, but I also believe it's a lot American. We preach a gospel that's all about our prosperity and our fulfillment. And I believe, I believe that God wants to bless us. And I believe the blessing of God are ours. But I also believe that in the midst of being blessed, we're meant to be a channel of God and give freely and make sacrifice and serve with joy in plenty and in less. Can I get an agreement? Come on now. Come on. Come on. So he says, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and he is in you and you have received him from God, but you're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. The same way Jesus came and cleaned out a temple made of stones with political money. Do you understand that Herod the Great, the first Herod, actually believed that Maybe he might be a Messiah of sorts, even if in a political vein, and give a reprieve to the nation of Israel by currying favor with the Roman Empire. And to make himself great, he built this wonderful uh, temple. And the Pharisees were thrilled with him for that fact, if nothing else. And even Jesus' disciples they said to him, isn't it beautiful, Jesus? Look how marvelous this temple is. This is Jesus' disciples, to which Jesus said, don't be too impressed with the building. Not one stone will be left upon another. Now God says you are his temple. Now that he's willing to go, ooh, over. That, he's willing to go, ah, over. Isn't that what he did when he made the first temple? He created man in his image, and he said, whoa, it is good. You and I have been born again, and the Spirit of God has come back into the temple. 
And Paul gives us a gentle but a real important reminder. Hey, church, you're not your own. He set you free. He bought you. And he put his spirit on in you so that he could be on show to the world through your life. We are the temple. And therefore, if Jesus came and cleansed a temple made by a corrupt Herod for corrupt reasons and for personal and political gain, what will he do with a temple that he made with his own hands, that he died for and cleansed with his own blood? While prayer doesn't always seem like the most attractive thing, I want to tell you that prayer is a gateway to the supernatural of God. And we're going to get into that next week. I'm going to show you how the Word of God lays that down. But I want to make a couple of summaries as I close, and I really am closing. I see five things here that between Isaiah 56 and Psalm 51 and uh, even 1 Corinthians 6, 19, I see five things that you and I are meant to model I see from David's psalm, he starts out and he says, Oh God, you are my Savior and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. And I see that this temple is supposed to be a temple that has a lifestyle of right living. A temple that puts aside selfish greed, selfish ambition, Selfish intent, selfish self-exaltation. A life of righteousness is a life that's conscious of living right with God, right with oneself, and right with others. And I see that a lifestyle of righteousness is very important for the temple of God. And Jesus mirrored that by rebuking them for the unrighteous lifestyle and activity that had been garnered around the temple of the Lord. Number two, it's meant to be a lifestyle of praise. David says, open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. Listen, praise and worship will not come out of this church. It will not cease. We are, but I don't want you just to come to church to worship. Our lives must be a lifestyle of praise. If you hang around me long enough, people have commented, you know, my default, everything has a default. Some defaults I'm not going to tell you about. But I will boast in this one default. If you hang around me, you'll often hear me just spontaneously say, Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Because I've come to realize that he's my source. I screw up. I fail. I want to do good. And at times, even though I have the power to do good, sometimes I still choose the wrong. But the one thing that is constant 
is his faithfulness and his goodness. Amen. And so I find I was waking up this morning and I, I could hear myself in my thoughts as I'm waking up talking to my Father, talking to the Holy Spirit, and talking to Jesus. And I was having a great time. I really was. And uh, the first words out of my mouth this morning were, thank you, Jesus. I praise you, God. And it's become a lifestyle. Am I telling you that it never gets interrupted with a wrong thought or a wrong word? No. Unfortunately, at times it does get interrupted. I'm being very honest here. Do you notice I'm kicking away the pedestal and I'm walking on streets of dirt and dust so that you can equate? Our lives are meant to be lives that are a lifestyle of righteousness, a lifestyle of praise, a lifestyle of humility. David says, you don't delight in sacrifices or burnt offerings, or I would do all that. But God, what you're really looking for is a broken spirit. In other words, a humble spirit. A haughty spirit needs to be broken. A prideful mind needs to be broken. But a broken spirit is not someone who's beat up. A broken spirit is a spirit that's not filled with itself. It's now filled with the Spirit of God. A broken spirit is a spirit that is humble. A spirit that understands that my successes are really his testimonies of his power and his goodness. Sometimes we're so quick to boast on ourselves when we have a moment of success and we've been promoted or, you know, <laughs> we went fishing the other day and, you know, you, you can't hang out with guys without testosterone coming to the surface no matter how deep the water is you're fishing in. And so there was competition going on left, right, and center. And one guy pulled in the, the largest grouper of the day and uh, needless to say, the minute he's catching this thing, he goes, hey, oh, oh. We got it on film. <laughs> and all of us were secretly imagining being able to do an even bigger, hey, oh, because we'd catch the next biggest fish. But in a moment of success, we are quick to sometimes be coming haughty, and it'd be very wise to understand that all of our successes are answered prayers, and they are testimony of his greatness. Amen. Amen. A lifestyle of humility. Fourth, a lifestyle quick to repent. Quick to repent quick to say, Lord, you know, I acted like a bonehead 10 minutes ago, and I got a little bit arrogant with my mouth and maybe even hurtful to some people. I wish I recognized it. That happened 10 minutes ago. I wish I had recognized it 11 minutes ago, but I recognize it now. And I'm sorry, God. Help me to be more and more like you. You see, this equates with a teachable spirit. 
Sometimes as Christians, we become so knowledgeable, we're also haughty or arrogant or proud. Here, let me say it in a nicer way. Not as teachable as we once were. And the moment we're not teachable, we're not usable. Hang on a second. I need to have another moment. Good point, Pastor Rob. Good preaching, Pastor Rob. Hear me, church. It, it's truth. They may be simple things and, you know, you want to swim in deep oceans, but sometimes the simple truths of God are deeper than what we realize. To be unteachable is to be unusable in God's hands. And to remain with a teachable spirit is to be very, very usable in God's hands. And so quick to repent is, is a person who's teachable. It, 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 it equates all of the qualities of remaining sensitive. And God conscious. Absolutely. Thank you. Amen. I'll agree with you. Good preaching, Pastor Ron. And lastly, a lifestyle of prayer. Sorry, so number four was a lifestyle that's quick to repent. And number five is a lifestyle of prayer. Amen. A house of prayer is a life of prayer. Jesus said it over and over again, and out of four Gospels, three of them write it. My house should be a house of prayer. Let me remind you, you are the house. The Spirit of God has come back into the house. You are not your own. You are the temple, and God wants to live in his temple without pollution, and he wants to be a showcase so that the world can see how wonderful he is. And God intends that this house, this house, that house, that house of prayer becomes a movie theater of miracles. Absolutely. God wants your life to be filled with evidence of his supernatural interaction so that the temple of God is projecting a movie of the goodness and the graces, the greatness and the grace of God so that the world will look and the world will go, ooh, and ah. You see, the prophet Joel said, in the last days, he's speaking through God, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And you young men will see visions Old men will dream dreams, and your young ladies will prophesy. Now, some have interpreted that to mean just in the very, very last days. I don't believe that. I believe it was ever since the Holy Spirit fell to ever since Jesus comes again. And when he comes a second time, he's going to make a second proclamation. And the rapture of the church is going to be a, rap, a, a proclamation that the day of God's wrath is coming to the earth. But from his first coming to his second coming, we're meant to live in the miraculous and meant to live in the god testifying realm of his power, his goodness, and his ability to do awesome things. And so when we become the 
the house of God, a house of righteousness, a house of praise, a house of humility, a house that's quick to repent, and a house of prayer. It will be the gateway to the house of the miraculous, and I'll preach on that next week. I encourage you, as we are entering in the last of the last days, and however you want to interpret last days, we are surely in the last of the last days. So I say to you, expect to have visitations from God. Expect to prophesy. Expect to dream dreams. Expect to have visions. Expect the miraculous of God. If you don't expect it, you won't be disappointed because you won't get it. And if you expect it, you will not be disappointed because you will get it. Amen. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. When we set our face to run after God, God will be in the midst of us running with us. Hallelujah. Amen. Come on, let's stand. Thank you, Jesus. Before we close and we leave, I hope you come back next week. I hope you come back and come back and come back and come back. Because I believe that God is readying his church. And I believe incredible things that should be happening all along will definitely start happening. I feel very clearly that God has mandated me to deliberately start moving in the realm of the Spirit far more. And making the proclamations of the healing, delivering, saving, miraculous power of Jesus Christ. Amen. But friend, it's one thing to come to a church. It's another thing to become the church of Jesus Christ. And that's a thing that happens to each person individually you cannot become the house of God or the church that the Spirit of God lives in until you let Jesus Christ live in you you see the world can shake and it literally will the Bible says once more everything that can be shaken will be shaken the Bible prophesies that there will be a day where there will be a worldwide earthquake when Jesus steps foot on the Mount of Olives. By the way, every fault line on earth intersects the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives will be split in half and the prophets said, the oceans will rise and islands will disappear. The prophets say mountains will cease to exist because they will crumble and fall. What you saw in Japan 10 years ago was a warning. 
It's a microcosm of what's about to come. But for those who are ready, we won't see the wrath of God. We're going to see the joy of His face. And we will meet Him in the air. But even in these tumultuous times, the beginning of earth pains, the house of God will never shake. If Jesus is in your heart, you will be the house of God, the house where God lives. Amen. Every eye closed. Friend, I'm not here to throw stones. Hey, I had no problem putting a stone a flashlight on my own life and making ample acknowledgement that I'm not perfect. So I sure as heck am not. Sure as heaven not going to try to beat somebody else up. But I do want to show you the way to eternal life and a lifestyle with Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I stand at the door of each person's life and at multiple times, I will give them opportunity. I will talk to their conscience and convict them. I will talk to their mind of reason and reason with them. And I will talk to their emotions and stir them. He said, behold, I stand at the door of people's lives. And I knock. And I knock. And I knock. Jesus said about us, he said, when you pray, knock and keep on knocking. If he told us to do that, I know he does it. And he has knocked on your door, and he has knocked on your door, and he has knocked on your door. And today, if you've never asked Jesus Christ into your heart, I have no doubt because of the faithfulness of God that he is knocking. He said, and if any man, if any person, color, creed, background doesn't matter the worst of the worst of sinners of which we all are Jesus said I will answer and come into his house but you have to say yes and open the door it has to become the choice of your will where you will finally surrender all your striving and all your effort has gotten you to the place you're at today and it's not really where you want to be anyway. Maybe you've moved ahead, but it's not where you want to be. And that's all your striving and effort. It's a lot easier than that. Open the door and let Jesus Christ come in. So while every eye remains closed, if the Spirit of God is talking to you right now and you have never asked Christ into your heart or you did years ago when your mama took you to Sunday school, nothing wrong with that, but you've walked away. Today's the time to open your heart and say, God, I screwed up. Come back into my life. I need you and I want you. I want to renew this relationship. If the Spirit of God is talking to you, Everyone's eyes closed. Don't even open your own eyes. Put your hand up in the air. I want to pray for you quickly. If that's you, come on. Don't be afraid. Don't be ashamed. Put your hand up and say, yes, pastor, I need to make that decision. I want to make that decision. Thank you. I see that hand. Who else? Others. Don't be shy and don't be afraid. This is an important thing. 
the most, the most important thing. I'm going to ask everyone to pray with me. And if you raised your hand especially, I want you to pray this prayer in faith that God hears. My goodness, there isn't an invitation from us to God that God will ever miss. You don't have to come all dressed up. You could come broken and dirty. And he will run to that invitation. Everyone repeat after me. Dear God, I believe you love me. I feel you now. I sense you now. There's a stirring in my heart. And I'm saying yes to you knocking on the door. Jesus Christ, I welcome you into my heart. Forgive me. Forgive me. I've made so many mistakes. Forgive me. I thank you, Jesus, that you accept me. And I accept you. Thank you for dying on that cross. Now thank you for living in my life as of today. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Jesus Christ, who died on that cross and rose again. I welcome you into my life. To live in me and live through me every day of my life. I surrender to Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, Holy Spirit, I trust. I, I believe that those who have prayed that prayer sincerely, first or second or even fifth time, whether they're in this room or watching by live stream, even now, Spirit of God, come upon them and put the seal of salvation. Let them know that they know that they know. Father, I pray for their boldness that they will share this with another born-again Christian so that others can rejoice and share the Word of God with them. Now, Father, I thank you that you've given me the honor to shepherd your people. And I thank you for a congregation that goes beyond these walls. Now I pray for all of these that they will continue to believe and they will wax strong in the Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost, continue to ready us for a great move of God. And everyone who welcomes it said, Amen. Amen and amen. Greet each other. Love on each other. Bless each other. Amen. And we will see you again. Amen.